Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Everybody, welcome! Hello, to our dirty laundry. I'm Mandy. I'm Katie. This is and we're back <laughs> a podcast about <laughs> white women being shitty throughout time and space. And we are two yeah. white women, longtime friends who like learning about this, uh, maybe in like a perverse sort of way. But it's <laughs> so important, and I I just keep getting news alerts about more bills and more legislation being passed around the country around anti-CRT and schools and policing what teachers can teach. Just today, I got an alert that in Iowa, where I live, the legislature has proposed a bill to put cameras in every single classroom, except for special ed and physical education. So I then am thinking like, what PE teachers do I know that I can plan badass you know, social justice lessons with in their physical education classes, if those aren't. And these are cameras to monitor whether or not they're teaching CRT, not like for technology purposes and distance learning issues or any of that. Correct. That is correct. And in fact, um, yeah, there's all sorts of, I'll pull this up here, but no, it's not, it's not so that kids can like connect from Who's home. Who's going to monitor these things? Well, that's Who's just it. No around? one, no one's sitting there watching like eight gazillion hours of it, but it's there. It's the way that I thought about it. So if it, a kid goes home and yes. complains and someone can ask him yes. to pull up the tape yes. and see what was said. Almost like, um, oh, Lord. like the, like a weird perversion of police cameras. Like, okay, yeah. well then we're going to make you wear cameras or have cameras in your classroom so that we can prove when you, when you disobey these other laws we've passed about you can't teach that the U S and Iowa are racist and sexist, like the divisive concepts bills. Mm -hmm. We're going to, now this is our accountability measure to make sure you're doing that. Like we have, we'll be able to catch you. If anyone reports you, we'll have tapes. So the bill, these people are so fucked up. Like they have, (laughs) they're like champions of freedom and personal rights and whatsoever, but we're going to monitor you well so here's the exact full time in exact bill. It's house file 2177 the bill requires each public school district to install cameras in every classroom not designated for special letter pe so that parents and guardians of children may view live footage of their children's classrooms so you could like just you just have a, you have a lunch hour like i better watch my kids seventh hour history class to make sure so creepy uh-huh. the bill and who knows what kind of weirdos are out there watching these kids, oh i mean us, like tracking kids well, uh, <laughs> so well it, so it does say that the bill requires the school district to restrict the access to view live footage of cameras in its classroom so that only a parent guardian of a child in the class may view the footage during hours in which students are in normal attendance i'm sure that's going to like uh, just like from a technical perspective, all of this is no, a nightmare. Um, the bill does provide that expenses related to the installation and maintenance of classroom cameras and related services and hardware necessary to maintain live footage of classrooms shall be paid from the school foundation aid as if schools don't need that funding for anything right. else. Yeah, yeah. Then, we can't get schools funding for jack shit or give teachers a raise. I don't know. Maybe or anything. better ventilation so systems that 
like yeah. <laughs> just modern ventilation systems would be great. I mean, there's a million things having been a former classroom teacher that I would put on this list before cameras for lots of reasons. Um, the bill provides that an employee of a school district who intentionally obstructs, disconnects, or otherwise causes a camera or online site not to function in a way that complies with requirements for classroom cameras will be guilty of noncompliance. An employee guilty of noncompliance shall be subject to a written reprimand for a first offense, a fine equivalent to 1% of their weekly salary, salary for a second offense, and a fine equal Almost to... like a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> take, take my 78 cents, you dicks. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to raise, we're going to start a fund so that we can pay those fees. Oh That's God. what we're going to do for people. That's a genius idea. <laughs> Honestly, yes. Donate here so that you can pay the fines of these teachers that. turning their cameras off right after they give them the middle finger. <laughs> exactly. And then hit click. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, students, our lessons today, we're going to read between the lines and I'm holding up three fingers. Um, the last section here says the bill provides that a superintendent of a school district who fails to cause an employee of a school district to comply with the requirements shall also be subject to a fine equal to 5% of their weekly salary each time an employee of the school district is guilty of noncompliance for a third or subsequent time. This is the most fucked up thing I've ever heard. Like these people <laughs> it's so fucked are up. off of their goddamn rockers. Yeah. And like who comes up with this shit? I mean, ultimately, the one thing that makes me feel a little bit like secure that this can't pass is because FERPA is a, a oh, yeah. super powerful, I don't even know what to call it, like privacy, privacy regulations. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. like if if someone calls the school to see what my like I can't call the school and be like, what is my kid's best friend's grade point? You know, like it's private mm -hmm. information. You can't share that. So I don't I don't know how you would ever be able to get around FERPA if you were in class doing anything. Like let's say we're reviewing the test and we're looking at questions that kids got wrong. Like there's a million things or we're having a conversation, like really, really good social studies, for instance, is discussion based and student centered. And so students have questions. Mm -hmm. And if you know at any minute that your parent is going to be logging in live, there might be things that you don't want to ask or things that yep. you need to talk about, but don't want to talk about. It, there are a million reasons why this is absolutely bonkers. And ironically, I think what the cameras would mostly catch are just like constant microaggressions against minoritized students. Um, but the, this yeah. legislature doesn't give two shits about that. So anyway, that's what's oh my on my gosh. current event docket. Anything that on yours? Just boggles my <laughs> mind. Bananas. I'm like, I'm just fascinated, fascinated by the amount of time these people have. Oh, that's but just this it. Is, again, right. maybe this is like, this is a symptom of the bored housewife. These I don't know. Like, it's a symptom of just know. white supremacy for sure. That's yeah. like without <clears throat> question. So yeah. Anyway, I'll uh, keep you posted, but that there's just like a whole yeah. bunch coming out lately in our legislature. They, you know, they had this success passing the divisive concepts bill and now they're like kids in a candy store with bills like this. So we'll just see what happens, but I won't be part of um, complying with that and doing whatever I can to yeah. bust it up, even if it um, means yeah. like donating a bunch of duct tape to cover cameras and money for funds right. to break that. You're right. The like the dollar <laughs> per teacher per day. Um, yeah. So today um, I'm trying to think of like a perfect segue here. I'm sure there are connections to so make no doubt, but we started off uh, this season talking about the different waves of feminism and how the wave metaphor is actually itself really problematic. We'll talk about that a little bit more today. And then you taught us last week about Betty Friedan that I thought was mm -hmm. so fascinating. I am so glad that's where we started. And today yeah. 
I know for a fact we are not going to get through this all today, but we're going to talk about the National Organization of Women now. Awesome. Yes, that Betty Friedan helped to found. It's a good thing that the acronym wasn't like the Ladies Auxiliary of the Equal Rights Leader. (laughs) (laughs) Should have been. No. I get that they want it now. Well, what do you know yeah, about just now? Doesn't happen. Tell me what you're. I mean, just from what I um, had briefly read about the organization of it, I think it was apparently just a, a few people meeting together at another conference, mm-hmm. um, and then like just talking to each other about forming an organization. And apparently, like the title or the name of the organization now was Betty Friedan like scribbled down on a napkin. Mm -hmm. So the story goes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she founded it with, I think Shirley Chisholm was one of the founders. Shirley Chisholm, Um, they will work with her, I think later because they are one of the few organizations that endorses her campaign for president. Um, And then Polly Polly Murray Murray is there for sure. Mm -hmm. For sure is there. Um, There was another Maury. I can't remember. Gosh, you, the other, this is impressive. This is woman's. way more than I would have been able to tell you for sure. <laughs> uh, Muriel Fox, okay. I think it was, was also someone else who was well, involved. So, so yeah. yes, I mean, like all of those things are certainly part of it. And I will say that um, when I said, oh, I'll look into now, I first went to their website because I thought mm-hmm. they're still an organization. And um and then, of course, like my standard operating procedures to type in like the name of the person we're learning about and then like racist or like white supremacy and just see what critiques have come up. <laughs> that pops up. Yeah. Well, it turns out a lot. So I, we will get to <laughs> the most recent, like even in the last few years, there's been uh, like a lot of issues that I didn't know anything about that I really want to get into really, truly like 2017, 2018, like very, very recent. Um, but I wanted to go to their roots like okay so how what's the story that they tell about their founding and i was reading through Mm -hmm. it and taking all these notes and then went back it just it all sounded like very neat and tidy and it was much like the story that you just um documented like betty for dan with like a tip of the hat to Polly murray and it was this conference and they these people met in a hotel room and they were super mad and fired up um because of the civil rights act not protecting um women's employment, like there, it was basically looking at the EEOC, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, not fielding complaints about sex discrimination the way that it was supposed to. So that was um, a federal agency that was organized through the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so within the first year or two, it was clear that they weren't really doing what they should be doing. And so there were some folks on the inside that were upset and doing what they could to pressure from the inside. But they're like, you know, we could really use a group on the outside putting pressure. And so Betty Friedan calls women into her hotel room. They have this conversation. She writes now on a napkin and then off they go. And, mm-hmm. and they, they have the statement of purpose. And on their website, they say that Betty Friedan wrote it. Other scholarship I found calls that into question. So once I started going down some rabbit holes, it's act, of course, like we shouldn't be surprised that that's, it doesn't start with Betty Friedan saying like, Hey, I have an idea, or mm-hmm. it doesn't even start with the EEOC complaints. It actually goes back much, much further. So 
Okay. Um, the, of, course. of course it does. Yes. And the article that mm-hmm. I'm primarily pulling from here is by Carol Giardina and it's, um, for feminist studies journal article in 2018, Mao to now and Mao MOW mm. is the March on Washington to now being the national organization of women, black feminism resets okay. the chronology of the founding of modern feminism. So of course oh. I read that title and I was like, it's yes. exactly <laughs> what we want to learn about. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, the, in the article, um, Carol Jean Nardina talks about really common misunderstandings. Um, she says, although time and again, black women have led the way the prevailing historical understanding has been that white women initiated the movement with black women embracing feminism several years later. This flawed pattern holds in scholarly and popular work and includes both the older liberal branch of the movement, of which now is the leading organization, and the younger radical women's liberation branch that arose in 1967, a year after now formed. And then she has like three pages where she just calls out historians on how wrong they are. Like here, and mostly I think white women historians on how -hmm. they're narrating the story in a way that's really troubling that it it centers okay. white women and it's not to say that the white women that they're centering weren't involved but they're painting a picture that is super misleading about their role in the movement and the chronology of things like the order of things so it wasn't that white women had this idea and black women got on board it's the opposite like black women yeah. had this idea they invited white women in and what happens and does next? this is this seem like these women who are writing this like not full history are doing this on purpose or they're just clueless. It, it I mean, it's part of the whole white supremacy, like blindness. I, to right. Like at one point who what's cares, going on. you know, like the impact is the same. The other part of it is, I don't know. It struck me just so similar to the narration of um, Seneca falls. Like, Mm-hmm. Like, let's have a clear starting point and clear leaders and tell the story in this way. And that's going to mobilize people. And like, even if you're knowingly crafting a narrative that you know is misleading or not entirely true or like leaving people out, it, it's like a pro- a political project to try to further your goals. So I, you know, who knows what their, yeah. what their, nobody's is. burning, burning big piles. No, of no I don't, maybe, I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> but I, I think that's a, it's an interesting question. Like what their intention is if they are willfully ignorant, but I honestly, I think, having gone through a PhD program myself, like how you're trained, how you're educated shapes the kinds of questions you ask. It shapes the sources that you look for. So you don't even know to ask different questions. You don't even know to think about other people. And then hopefully once you start learning that you have a very limited point of view, you stop doing that. I think that's where I come in. Like if people, if they have their work critiqued and this is pointed out and they keep doing it, then fuck them. Right. And that seems to be the problem. Like clearly there were black women in this era, as I'm sure you're going to talk yeah. about, who were like, hey, hello, hi. Right. And these women w- ignored that on one way or another. Well, what I haven't found yet, and maybe maybe doesn't exist, I don't know, is I'm really fascinated to learn more about what the women I'm going to talk about today thought of. They, they all died in like the 80s, 90s, 2000s. And so I'm so curious what they thought of how the narrative of feminism, of modern feminism got constructed and how mm-hmm. they were written out of it by so many historians um, or textbooks. Yeah. Like, I really want to find that out. But um, thus yeah. far, I have not learned that part of it. So the other piece that she, that Carol Giardina says, Giardina says is an, a common misunderstanding is that if we look at 
like radical black feminism or womanism as like a later development that it often gets attributed to a response to black power movements, masculinity and like chauvinism, like, Mm -hmm. oh, the black power movement had this dream. But as we learned in the reproductive rights movement, that might have been there initially, but that a lot of women within that movement pushed back really hard. And then in some cases, those movements then fully embraced reproductive justice and were like the Black Panthers were super supportive of Shirley Chisholm. You know, like there were, it's not as clear cut as that. And there, what this history shows is there was actually tons of chauvinism within the classical civil rights movement period, like with the March on Washington. And so even in the like forties and fifties and before it wasn't like they were great to women, those male leaders. And then the black power Mm -hmm. leaders came in and they were horrible to women. That's just, and it gets framed that way and it's not true. Mm. So, okay. okay. So she talks about how she, that we could even, we're going to start the story at the March on Washington, but that we could go back even further. And she notes two other women that I totally want to learn more about. Patricia Robinson um, is a woman who started the, a poor black women movement um, even earlier. Um, And the little bit that I was learning about her was super fascinating. And then the um, SNCC Black Women's Liberation Committee, there's also lots of black labor organizing that has like streams that are, that are flowing and connecting to this other stream. So it's impossible to pinpoint like the capital T start capital S. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think there is the start, but it definitely does not start with Betty Friedan having the idea for sure. Right. Okay. So this historian says we really need to look at the March on Washington and the political, political lessons that emerged out of it as the starting point in the, what she calls the chronology of the rebirth years of feminist upheaval in the 1960s. Why? Because the lessons of that campaign provided the crucial conceptual model of an NAACP for women that would be consciously and purposely adopted by the newly forming National Organization for Women. Um, together with Dorothy Hyatt, Anna Arnold Hedgeman, the only woman on the March of Washington Planning Committee, and longtime co-conspirator Polly Murray, who spearheaded the March on Washington protests, were critical actors in NOW's formation and brought the model to NOW's more well-known white organizers. And the only, mm-hmm. on NOW's website, the only woman that I of color that I could find that they mentioned in the founding story was Polly Murray, and they didn't mention mm-hmm. Dorothy Hyatt, and they don't mention Anna Arnold Hedgeman, um, which mm-hmm. I think is a little bit egregious. And so... Um, we've talked about this before that, you know, that black women's experience with being oppressed because of their sex and also because of their race and how those two combined, um, Giardina says they were best prepared to challenge female oppression because they understood sexism sooner than most white women, because they had already learned the operations of power and exploitation, um, that they had this collective experience of confronting oppression as a collective. Um, so this, she really wants to think of it as like a very long struggle and movement, which we've really talked about, I think the last couple mm-hmm, of weeks. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then yes. Bef- so before I get into the March on Washington, I do want to shout out these three women in particular, because we're going to hear a lot about them. Dorothy Haidt, Anna Har- Arnold Hedgeman and Polly Murray. So mm-hmm. Dorothy Haidt was born in 1912 and died in 2020. She grew up in Pittsburgh. Her dad was a building contractor. Her mom was a nurse. She had really severe asthma and her family didn't think she would live past her teenage years, but she did for a long time. She um, was a super talented student. She won a speech contest and the scholarship money she won, she used to go to NYU. 
And then she graduated from NYU with a bachelor's degree in education and a master's degree in psychology. And then she started working in New York um, as a social worker. She was working on um, anti-lynching campaigns. There were this um, the Harlem riots in 1935 that she was influential in helping to like bring the community back together after that. She also testified against something called the Bronx slave market, which I had never heard of. And there's a rabbit hole I went down that apparently it was this um, area in the Bronx where people, often white people would go pick up women or girls for day domestic labor, maybe pay them, maybe not. Hmm. So it reminded me of... And this was what time period? Um, like the 30s, 1930s. Okay. It reminds me hmm. of thinking like, you know, you'll sometimes you'll see men who are undocumented in mm-hmm. like Home Depot parking lots. In You know, yep. they're like willing yep. to work for very, very little for people. Just super exploitative labor practice. And so she tests like she was saying, this is happening and it's fucked up and testified against mm-hmm. it. In 1938, she was one of 10 young people invited to Eleanor Roosevelt's um, house, like her summer house, I think, to plan for the World Youth Conference that took place that year. Eleanor Roosevelt was doing a ton of like international work at the time. Um, She then Mary McLeod Bethune, who's another like legend in Black freedom movements, became her mentor. I mean, Mary McLeod Bethune was the founder and president of the NCNW. Ugh, and now I can't remember. I remember talking about it when for. we were doing this suffrage. The National Council part. of We've Negro talked about Women. It. Yes, 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 yeah. we did. So mm-hmm. she becomes like her mentor. And then Dorothy Height actually becomes president of the NCNW for almost 40 years, 1957 to mm. 1998. So really pivotal years. And during that yeah. time, she was really involved, of course, in the civil rights movement. She first was exposing the sexual abuse of female civil rights workers who were imprisoned in Southern jails. Apparently the guards would rape them and sexually assault them. Um, She helped organize the March on Washington. She also coordinated something called Wednesdays in Mississippi. She co-founded it with this white woman, Polly Spiegel Cohen, that I really want. We talked about that at one point. I want a Kate shots. I think we talked about it briefly. I think in the voting rights we did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, She was a longtime leader in the YWCA. She worked all over the world with women's groups, um, primarily in the global South. And then in the seventies worked with Gloria Steinem, Shirley Chisholm, Betty Friedan to found the national women's political caucus. She was honored by a whole bunch of presidents. She never was married and she was known as the hat lady. And there's um, because she had all of these like glorious hats that she would wear. And the U.S. Postal Service actually issued a stamp in her honor where she's wearing this, like, glorious purple hat that's kind of like her Hmm. signature hat. Okay, so that's Dorothy Height. Anna Arnold Hedgeman, born in 1899, died in 1990. She was born in Marshalltown, Iowa. Of course. fellow Iowan. (laughs) And then moved to Anoka, Minnesota, this little town where her family was the only black family. She was the first black graduate of Hamlin. Um, in the Twin Cities with a degree in English. Then she couldn't find a job in Minnesota because she was black and there were racist hiring policies. And so she got a professor, she got a job as a professor at Rust, which is in Mississippi. It's the oldest HBCU. She worked as a director of lots of different YWCAs. So another connection with Dorothy Height. She was married. Her husband was an opera and a folk singer. Um, she had different gigs working for different like political campaigns and writing for different magazines. And then in 1957, she became the first black woman to serve 
on New York's mayoral cabinet for Mayor Wagner, I think is his name. And she was also involved in planning the March on Washington. She was the coordinator of special events for the Commission of Religion and Race of the National Council of Churches. And she's responsible for recruiting over 40,000 people to come to the march, which was officially called the March of on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. It often gets remembered as the the march where Martin Luther King gives his I have a dream speech. I have dreams. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's like, I think most people think of it as like a purely civil rights, like against segregation march, but it was actually for jobs and freedom. So it was an anti-poverty, mm-hmm. anti-exploitation um, march as well. Um, yes. So that is a little bit about Anna Arnold Hutchman. And then Polly Murray um, was born in 1910 and died in 1985. She was born Anna Pauline Murray in Baltimore. Her father was a teacher who had gone to Howard. Um, and her parents actually died when she was really young. Her mother died when she was four and her father died when she was 13. Just like hurts my heart to type those notes out when I'm reading something yeah. like that. And then really for some reason, I remember like the details of their deaths are pretty terrible too. Like her mom died of a brain aneurysm, yes. which is like a super sudden way to die when she was only really little, like three or four. Mm-hmm. And then her dad had some like mental health issues mm-hmm. and was depressed and was in a um, mental institution. And he was murdered by one of the oh guards. Oh my God. I didn't see yeah. that. Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Horrible. So talk about trauma. Lots of trauma. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I want to be clear. I'm using she, her pronouns. Her foundation suggests mm-hmm. using she, her pronouns or they, them pronouns. It's this, um, I think just really important, fascinating story for lots of reasons. But part of it is like trying to understand someone's sexual identity in an age before there was a lot of language for it, or yep. it wasn't, you know, not that it's safe now to identify as trans or to come out as trans, but certainly in like the thirties and forties, when she was coming of age, that's a really scary, dangerous time. And in her journals, she wrote that she wondered if she was quote, one of nature's experiments, a girl who should have been a boy. Um, she herself, because of the struggle had multiple hospitalizations in her twenties and thirties. She actually sought medical treatment, um, and consulted doctors. I actually want to use they pronounce she, I don't know. So Polly she Murray was consulting. So she looked, she tried to find someone who would do gender affirming yes, surgery and, and was and turned away. Right. So clearly she was fairly set on that or they were fairly They're, set mm-hmm. on that. And at that point yep, and identified as having quote an inverted sex instinct. Again, it's like language just wasn't there. Um, really there was a lot I read about like how historians debate about how to, what pronouns to use her foundation, their foundation um, debates, but Polly Murray in their writing used she, her pronouns, but it's mm-hmm. hard because mm-hmm. you also think like, was that even something? I don't know. It's just hard. I want to be as respectful as possible. So I did like the state because I did read part of that statement on their website too. And I think it is very thoughtful. Like there is no way to know because mm-hmm. no one was able to ask her about it right? or in her lifetime, but she did write in later using she, that her, but so I think they say that when they are referring to Polly in later life, mm-hmm. they call her, she, mm-hmm. her because she used those terms. Um, but when they're referring to Polly in earlier life, they tend to use they, they there. Okay. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. or, sure. So, I mean, the term gender fluid is definitely one that I think <clears throat> most scholars are comfortable using. And then um, she resisted the term lesbian or they resisted the term lesbian um, and saw, really saw herself as someone attracted to 
feminine women who would be attracted to her masculinity. And she was in a long-term partnership with Irene Barlow um, over 20 years. Um, and actually, you know, was born and but chose the name Polly, chose a mm-hmm. more gender P-A-U-L-I, um, short for Pauline, like a more gender neutral name over yeah. their birth name. Um and there, yeah, it's just, it's tricky. Like sometimes identified as a, a he slash she personality. So yeah, it's tricky. Um, but it's, I think just incredibly important to talk about that because there's this, I, I want just again, thinking about the beginning when we we're talking about current events and legislation, like for kids who are gender fluid or kids who are trans or kids who are questioning to just know that there were people who came before them, that it's not new, that this is like part yeah. of the human experience. This is very old, very ancient. Like as long as there've been humans, this has existed. And to also just see themselves reflected in history as people who were really pivotal historical figures. I just think it's all super important. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. um, Polly graduated from Hunter College in New York City and then applied to UNC Chapel Hill and Harvard at various times for law school and was denied for being black, um, but graduated from Howard Law School. And then UC Berkeley was the first black person to earn a JSD, like a basically like a PhD in law at Yale, and then coined the term Jane Crow and Jim Crow and wrote mm-hmm. a lot about um, re- really like writing all about intersectionality before that term was coined. Um, Mm -hmm. And then this also I had tons of admiration for Uh, when Polly was 62, basically like shifted gears completely entered the seminary and became the first black Episcopal priest in 1977 and then passed away from cancer a few years later. Okay. So I know that was, it seems like a tangent, but I just want us to have a sense of who these people are that were involved. So they were all involved, um, especially Hedgeman and Height in the planning of the March on Washington. Murray was involved as well, but less centrally so. So as the march is getting planned, you know, the civil rights movement at this point has like really picked up steam. There it's definitely the la- the 10 years before that surging in the public public imagination. I don't know. Imagination makes it sound like it's not happening. Like it's on people's radar that these, there are lots of boycotts. You just have a ton of organizations. You have a ton of protests, things are happening. Um, and so they were especially pissed because women, um, were not super involved in the planning of this March. And the women who were involved, like Hedgeman and Height kept saying, we need more women involved. And they kept getting ridiculous pushback. Like, um, a. Philip Randolph was one of the major organizers, and he comes from like a labor tradition of civil rights. And he offered, he's like, okay, we'll um we'll like shout out the women who've been involved by saying their names and asking them to stand, and then everyone will like applaud for them, and then they can sit down, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and then Bayard Rustin, who's like a really overlooked figure often because he was gay. And was pushed out of the movement in some ways, like really marginalized because of his sexual identity. But he was one of the central planners of the March in Washington. He said women were represented because Mahalia Jackson was singing. So that should be enough. And then there were two already too many speakers planned. We could not possibly make any adjustments. Um, Mm -hmm. And the this is also like Hedgeman and Height are saying Rosa Parks should be central to this march. 
Mm-hmm. Because she's Rosa Parks and yeah. Daisy Bates, who was the president of Arkansas's NAACP, who organized the Little Rock Nine, which was one of the mm. like all of these major moments that led up to the march even being possible. The Montgomery bus boycott, the the desegregation of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, Diane Nash was the leader of direct action for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent mm-hmm. Coordinating Committee. She was um, the head of the Freedom Rides. All of those Efforts, actions were what were garnering public attention and outrage and even making something like the March on Washington possible. None of them were featured at the march. None Mm. of them were speakers, even when people were like, they need to be involved. They got shut down because we already have too many speakers and the lady is singing. So stop complaining. So some women were so mad that they didn't even attend the march at all. Um, Then. Dorothy Hyde gets invited to the presidential delegation that met with um, with LBJ after the march. Um, and Randolph, before the march, gave a statement to the National Press Club, which I guess did not allow female reporters at all. And so the women that were pushing him were super pissed about that. And so he had to make a statement that he's, quote, definitely committed to the equality of women and then let female reporters attend the speech. Like, how nice of you to let them do that. <laughs> then the female, the civil rights leaders like Parks, Nash, Bates, all of these women, um, I think actually Daisy Bates couldn't make it because she was stuck in traffic. But the they had to march with the male leaders' wives behind the front line. So the front line was the men and then their wives and the female leaders could be behind them. Um, mm-hmm. And, oh, no, Daisy Bates was there because she gave like a super, super, super short speech that I think was the only time a woman spoke 142 words called Tribute to Negro Women Freedom Fighters. And then Randolph took the microphone from her and he introduced the women to like stand up and get applause, even though that was supposed to have been Daisy Bates. And he um, messed up the names. He called women who weren't there. He couldn't really remember like who he was even supposed to introduce. Apparently it was super awkward and super frustrating. And so Daisy Bates recalls Rosa Parks turning to her and saying, our time will someday come. Like they were pissed. They definitely knew this wasn't mm-hmm. cool. And so after the march, Polly Murray's pissed off and was, she had worked for Randolph's labor organization, his organizing board. And so she's like, fuck this. I'm focusing on women full time. Like this is not okay. So mm-hmm. Again, at the if you go to Now's website, their history doesn't mention any of this. And there are a mm-hmm. couple of really important meetings that come before the Now official history picks up on their website. Okay, so one okay. meeting is August 29th, 1963. So the March on Washington happens. Women are pissed off. They're like, the fuck was that? And so the National Council of Negro Women get together in Washington, D.C., August 29th, 1963, literally the day after the March on Washington. And so mm-hmm. Giardina says that for her, at least, this is the first meeting of feminist protest in the 60s. And it was Dorothy Height calling it um, as president of the National Council of Negro Women. And it was basically like a debrief for the women who'd been involved. Dorothy Hyde said, the women became much more aware and much more aggressive in facing up to sexism in our dealings with the male leadership in the movement. We could hardly believe that after all we were doing in the civil rights movement, the women came to feel that they were getting kind of a runaround. I was determined to bring wise women together to learn and gather strength from the experience. I mean, think about who we've learned about already, like Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, Septima mm-hmm. Clark, like all of these people. I don't know. What, what are you thinking right now? It makes sense in the context of everything else we've talked about, Mm -hmm. about, you know, 
feeling like they've been marginalized in their own work, but I'm also impressed at like their immediate gathering together afterwards to be like, we're going to do something about Mm -hmm. this. I think that shows like just that they already had a community, like a sisterhood amongst themselves, that this was something that happened so quickly and Mm -hmm. that they were so on top of. And it reminds me of something that, um, that I read in the work of bell hooks that we talked about last week. Um, And she talks about like first attending college where all of these white women she saw get together and kind of like revel in their experience of being able to be together as women. Mm -hmm. And she was kind of amazed by their like novelty in that experience. Uh Um, Because she said that like, she had not known any sort of life where that wasn't how women were, Mm. where women were not like together and supportive and helping and protecting each other, which that just reminds me, you know, of what these women then immediately did in the aftermath of that too. It must've been part of what was already in their structure. Well, it's so, which really these women were like feminists before white women figured out what oh, of course. feminism For was. Sure, exactly. <laughs> and it's funny you talk about this because later, um, when Fernand does get involved in this story, um, she writes of her experience basically connecting with Polly Murray and this like initial kind of coalition of these different organizations and networks that, um, she, she definitely attributed Murray to that. Like, um, knows that there, like, knows that it wasn't her by herself. But she said, quote, it was as if the female underground was maneuvering me to the point where I would do what they knew needed to be done. I've never been an organization woman. I was a writer, a loner. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, mm-hmm. like, that idea of, like, lone, lone wolf or, like, I'm by myself or even the... Well, that's like the feminine mystique, exactly. like underpinnings, all of these women who are alone in their houses, like bored, depressed, whatever. There's not, there's not a community. Mm-hmm. They don't have a support. And that's like the whole basis for writing of the feminist mystique. But that really seemingly, mm-hmm. at least to these women and their experiences, the, the black women that were involved in this point in time, that's not the experience that they have in their communities. The problem isn't a lack of solidarity or sisterhood the the problem is like the sexism slash racism that they're experiencing right for sure right yes um yeah i mean just like i'll read this quote again that dorothy was determined to bring wise women together to learn and gather strength from the experience like that just being the immediate response to do mm-hmm. that just is a different learned response than i think what a lot of white wealthier women is like to do something on your own or, to, mm-hmm. you know, just the, the, that where it mixes with capitalism, like super individual focus. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. okay. So the second, so they have that like debrief and they're like, okay, clearly we need to like keep organizing cause this needs attention. So that was um, August 29th. So a couple months later, November 14th, 1963, the national council of Negro women has a leadership conference in New York city and their goal was to brainstorm ways to ensure that their treatment as second-class citizens that they had just experienced in the March on Washington. Because again, when you look at the history of the civil rights movement, massive leadership, like so much of that movement in a million years could never have happened without women leaders, everyday women on the ground. Like there's just Mm -hmm. absolutely no way. 
And so they, they said never again, will they have such a thing? Like never again, will they have to be sidelined in a movement that they are not even helping the the movement exists because of them, right? The foundation of the movement. Exactly. So this is actually where Polly Murray coins the term. Well, I don't know if this was the first time she used Jane Crow, but it's this famous speech, speech she gives called the Negro woman in the quest for equality. And it fires everybody up. And she's talking about Jane Crow, that it's discrimination, um, that black women are experiencing, even by male civil rights leaders and calling on African-American women to, to, develop strategy around that. And people hear that speech. They're super, super fired up. Um, they, they decide to quote, awaken other women. So they report on it in the black press. They reprint it in all these places, pamphlet, pamphlet, pamphlet. They (laughs) get busy. Um, historical black sororities published the speech. Like it just, it gets out there. Like it goes viral basically. So Mm -hmm. it was this sense that, like we need an organization that's focused on this problem. Like we need basically like a, an NAACP for women. That's the idea that you mm-hmm. hear that keeps mm-hmm. bubbling up all over. Okay. Speaking of the NAACP, the third meeting that is really important, and this is one that has roots that go even further back before the March on Washington, which again, remember, was not just for racial segregation, but was also about economic issues, the March on Washington mm-hmm. for Jobs and Freedom. So the history mm-hmm. of the labor movement and all of this is really important. So two women, Maida Springer and Dorothy Robinson, who I have flagged for future minisodes to learn about, um, that they knew Polly Murray from the 1940s, when they'd all worked on the Workers' Defense League's national effort to save um, a death row inmate, a black man named Odell Walker or Waller. Um, and then Springer and Murray continued to meet. Um, Giardina calls them their own mini political think tank and were just like super important friends to each other and thought partners just um, like theorists together. And so this, I, they're over the years of their friendship, we're talking about this idea for an NAACP for women. It keeps coming up, keeps coming up. Then this um, Negro American Labor Council gets started in 1960 as their founding conference. And Murray is there, Maida Springer is there, Dorothy Robinson is there, and they're advocating to make sure that women are represented in this organization's leadership body. And A. Philip Randolph is involved because he's like the labor guy. And big surprise that he's not a fan of this. Um, and they have these like huge arguments at this conference. And so um, women delegates call out from the convention floor that they're sick and tired of you men discriminating against us as women. Um, the, a Philip Randolph is like gaveling the gavel. They're like shouting. It just like, you know, is chaos. Mm-hmm. And the women get together in caucus to insist that this new organization on labor focus on labor rights absolutely has to include women in their leadership board obviously so that's Mm -hmm. happening and then in january of 1964 okay so that was 1960 you have the march on washington where the same bullshit's happening so it's just like the straw that breaks the camel's back is what it sounds like that like that march and a philip randolph and bayard rustin being dicks about it was like enough is enough so january 1964 so this is like again a couple months after um the National Council of Negro Women Leadership Conference, and like six months after the March on Washington, women of color labor activists within the NAACP form the Committee for the Defense of Working Women, and they demand equal attention to women on the employment front. 
Um, they take their demands to A. Philip Randolph and the Negro American Labor Council, and they put together a call to civil rights organizations, trade unions, churches for an action work- workshop that would address discrimination in hiring and poor working conditions of Black and Puerto Rican women workers. So Polly Murray is involved with this. That's the organization that she will ultimately like, like get frustrated with um, and try mm-hmm. to focus on women full time. So this, so I feel like there's just multiple streams converging here. Hopefully this is making uh-huh. sense. Am I yeah. rambling? Okay. We need a board with like pictures and yarn. <laughs> Stay with me. Yes. There's too many acronyms. Oh my gosh. Me and my yarn boards. <laughs> For sure. Um, yeah, I honestly, I think this is like the most organized way I could have done this. I tried a bunch of different things this morning. I'm like, no, I think this is the best way to try to tell this story. So, okay. Yeah. So we, so all of these things have happened. Like the, the labor group, the March on Washington has pissed the same group of women off. who have been friends for like 20 years. And they're just like, fuck this now we need to do something. And then at the same time, the civil rights act gets passed in 1964. And this, Republican Senator, the Senate leader, Everett Dirksen, which I feel like is like a name that you would give to a character that's like this uptight white guy that's ruining mm-hmm. everybody's life. Um, mm-hmm. He vows... Or like Matt Gates. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm picturing, like a 1960s <laughs> yeah. version of Matt Gates. Exactly. <laughs> yes. He's honestly, though, mm-hmm. like Matt Gates may be mixed with a little bit of like... Um, What's his name? Oh, my God. Um, Josh Mitch Holly? McConnell. No, I'm just thinking. Yeah, put oh, them okay. all together in like a stew of like white man fuckery. But they're like <laughs> like a whatever. So this guy, he so the Civil Rights Act, they're going to vote on the Civil Rights Act. And so they put in this Title seven that bans job discrimination because of your sex. And it's called the Sex Amendment in Title seven of the bill. And basically the idea was like, oh, if we put that in, it, the bill will get defeated. And mm. that's what the Republicans were trying, that they were trying right. to vote against it for that. Like, oh, sure, we want, we right. like black people, but we definitely don't want like women to have jobs. So there, <laughs> it was this huge debate around Title Seven. So Polly Murray was already working for the President's Commission on the Status of Women, like in her spare time. And, mm-hmm. um, apparently there was a secret feminist network of white women who worked in the administration who were concerned about these issues. And so they were like passing info to Polly Murray to try to like give her all the inside scoop on the behind the scenes negotiations of the civil rights act before it became law to try to help mm. her prep for the, like come up with talking points to give to the people that want to defend this. And so she worked on, um, what was called the memorandum in support of retaining the amendment to HR 7152 equal employment opportunity to prohibit discrimination in employment because of sex. And her memo goes to the attorney general, the vice president, the first lady, a bunch of senators in order to argue for keeping title seven and the sex amendment in the civil rights act. And um, lots of different women's groups get behind it. Betty Friedan gets behind it. Her book, remember, um, just had been published in 1963. Mm-hmm. So again, like kind of mm-hmm. all at the same time. And there was this sense that they needed like even more pressure to keep that amendment in and to keep, to get the civil rights act passed with sex discrimination in employment as part of what it would okay. make illegal. Um mm-hmm. 
So this is all, I know, again, it feels like hold this and now I'm going to put one more spinning plate on top of all these other spinning plates. <laughs> so um, the same year, Daniel Patrick Moynihan publishes mm-hmm. what becomes known as the Moynihan Report, which is pretty famous. And its official title yeah. is The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, which when a white man writes a paper about the Negro family, like definitely red flags all over the place. Yeah. Um, it was, but it was actually supposed to be a guide for Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. Like we, we were concerned about black poverty, but what the report blames that on instead of like the legacies of slavery and ongoing mm-hmm. racism is that the problem is the matriarchal structure of the black family. And that, um, we don't, they need to have male breadwinners and, that's what should happen. And one of the recommendations was that women of color, black women in particular, should forfeit their jobs for men. So it was like the problem is black men are emasculated by black women, not like oh it, mass incarceration or mm-hmm. segregation or like, mm-hmm. no, it's no. Right. And what qualified Moynihan to make these observations? Is he like an anthropologist of sorts or sociologist or anything? He, I don't, I need to look all? up what his, he was a scholar, but I need to look I'm gonna up. I'm going to guess the answer is no. no. I don't know. I need to look at his specific <laughs> field. But he was the assi- um, assistant secretary of labor at the time that he okay. wrote this. So it was like a federal okay. report. Um, so of course, like black women read this report. They're like, what in the actual fuck? Or not, mm-hmm. probably not all black women, but like these women that we're talking about, sure, we're not happy yeah. about this. Like Anna Arnold Hedgeman is just like disgusted and furious. Um, she critiques the report. Her critique circulates widely, denouncing it that it's like total bullshit. What is this? Um, then the Civil Rights Act gets passed and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or the EEOC is what gets created to help enforce the Civil Rights Act. So you can see why these women who've been working for so long on these issues have a Democratic president. They get the Civil Rights Act passed, but it's it's being enforced by people with the logic of the Moynihan Report. And mm-hmm. it's being enforced by people who have not fully grappled with all of the structures that they're trying to address. Um so again, Hedgeman, Murray, Height, this <coughs> network of friends are paying really close attention. And Murray says, no pressure group existed to press for implementation of women's employment rights. Do you suppose the time has come for the organization of a strong national ad hoc committee of women who are ready to take the plunge? And so this is like the idea that she and these other women have bandied about for lots of years. They're like, okay, enough is like enough is enough. This is it. We there, there's major legislative victories here that are going to do harm or not help us. And we need to organize and make sure that this thing that happened that we can work with actually helps us and doesn't end up cutting us out or excluding us again. So that's when we finally get to the national council of women's meeting October 12th, 1965, which is like a good two years now yeah. into all yeah. of this like ideation phase of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Polly Murray gives a speech on Title VII and why we need to protect it in New York City at this conference. 
and says there is reason to believe that Title VII will not be adequately enforced unless the political power of women is brought to bear. It should not be necessary to have another march on Washington in order that there be equal job opportunities for all. But if this necessity should arise, I hope women will not flinch from the thought. And then the New York Times covers her speech and they title the article, Protests Proposed on Women's Jobs. Yale Professor Says It May Be Needed to Obtain Rights. So Betty Friedan reads the article calls up Polly Murray, which I was just thinking like how in this time, like people don't have email, you know? People, yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know how you just get someone's a phone number, number, I guess. And remember rotary phones where it would take like 12 minutes to mm-hmm. dial up number even. Did you guys have yeah. a rotary dial oh, phone? Yeah. I'm sure we did. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Wait for it to my go. grandparents' house. Uh-huh. Um, our yeah. number had a lot of twos in it. And I remember just being like, geez, like, good Lord already. <laughs> like the two, you had to go all the way around the world, all the way back. Yeah. I needed a number <laughs> with like a lot of nines. Um, okay. So Betty Fran, rotary dial phone calls up Polly Murray and says we should meet, we should get together. And so Murray puts Betty Fran in touch with her like secret behind the scenes, white lady Politico Capitol Hill network um, and then they all get together. Um, and it's out of those conversations that Murray for Dan, Dorothy Hayner from the United Auto Workers, um, who was a white woman who also was like, yeah, I have a black friend that's been talking about this idea for an NAACP for women. <laughs> Her friend. <I'm> sure. <laughs> it seems like exactly how the conversation oh my God. Hey guys, I have a black friend. (laughs) She also has this great idea. Um, (laughs) Well, this friend was Dorothy Robinson, who co-founded the um, NALC, that labor group that I was just talking about that A. Philip Randolph was involved in. She was one of the co-founders of that organization who had demanded that women be involved. So they they were these like white women who were well-connected with super badass black women and so they all get together in Ferdinand's hotel room. There were 15 that like stay up all night and debate about how, what the organization should look like, how this should work. There were a few who didn't think an organization should happen that um, there would be, there should be other ways to try to push for this. Or like, of course, you know, classic arguments like, Oh, we should work within the system. We should conduct a study. You know, there are different strategies mm-hmm. or tactics, I guess. Um, but the women who wanted to, work on this like direct action organization, they met again for lunch the next day and they founded the national organization for women. And so for Dan called Murray, um, the black scholar who triggered me first in now's formation. Um, but Carol Giardina says Murray's influence was more fundamental than a trigger. She introduced and promoted the founding political organizational concept of an NAACP for women that now modeled itself on a concept long in development by African-American feminists active in the labor movement and the civil rights movement. And then Giardina said that Murray was the principal author of the statement of purpose with Hedgeman offering edits. But the now's website says that Friedan wrote it. So Mm -hmm. I really want to know what Mm -hmm. that's all about. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think that next time, we will get into what that statement actually says and then okay. do just kind of like a greatest hits of what now's accomplishments have been. And then what the debates about the 
ways that racism has worked in that organization. This Betty Friedan was, becomes the first president, but the mm-hmm. second president is Eileen Hernandez, who's a black woman. And then recently there was an election where like a whole bunch of shit came out about the organization and the degree to which it's reckoned with its white womanness. Um, sounds like it hasn't. Mm, okay. um, but that's that gets us through to its founding. I don't know. Thoughts. I know I just put like a ton of <laughs> I love that. spinning like, in the air. We, we, I love that there was an hour background. To... Of course there is, though. It doesn't start <laughs> the with... The usual starting point. Like, see, <laughs> you know, like... white ladies invited their cool black friends to a meeting and came up with an idea. Like, of course not. You right. know, it's the that these black women had been doing so much work for decades and had incredible skill and knowledge about how to even organize anything and were connected with these white women in various ways and then have this idea for an organization. Yeah. 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 Just an example of, again, why the, the waves of feminism is um, just we can critique that mindset of it because obviously all of this was still going on for years before this second wave came about. We just call right. it that when the white women get involved and mobilize things, but there's always stuff going on. It just depends on who's in power to bring it to the forefront, I guess. Or like the, you know, the second wave starting in 1963 with the feminine mystique being published, but Definitely the March on Washington. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Which I think is a way stronger case to say that that's really where it started. Again, it's like these different streams converging and coming together. But one stream is like a little tiny shallow trickle. It doesn't make sense to really focus most of our energies on celebrating that stream or saying that that's the reason that this like torrent exists when it's like the the one with the least volume of water and the least amount of force. Yeah. Yeah. Did that metaphor even make sense? I just, yeah, I liked it. <laughs> that was a good one. Thanks. Way to go. Wait, we're like, <laughs> we're a tributary. I think like, you know, white women's who are fighting for these issues can, you know, contribute, but it's just so frustrating time and again to see that their efforts were, they existed, but they're not necessarily the reason more often than not, they're not the reason something happened. And if anything, it sometimes gets in the way. Yep. For sure. There's some more good bell hooks quotes that I think will fit into a discussion. I love next time. I love what a bell hooks kick you're on. I know. <laughs> she just had so much good stuff to say, man. That's great. Oh, all right. Well, that was good. Thanks. Thanks for the pre-introduction yeah. to Team of Now. And then we I- will talk about <laughs> it again. <laughs> I think just like one more to just go over, you know, what the organization has been up to and what the current issues are around all of this, I think will be plenty. But there was yeah. a lot. Um, I just took a lot of notes about potential mini sods or rabbit holes. We could go down with some other things for sure. Good. Um, yeah, I think we definitely should talk about some of those women more, um, get more details into their lives and activism and highlight them where they have not been, unfortunately. That's great. Hey, um, shout out to Instagram, by the way. Don't forget to follow hey, us. Hey. Don't we We're actually getting have stuff posted? <laughs> <laughs> We're not. Gwen. Someone else is helping us get things posted, <laughs> and that's why it's happening. <laughs> so, yes. so yep. subscribe, like, share. Don't forget to rate us because that helps the the algorithm like recommend us to other people. 
Um, and yeah. don't forget to reach out. We love it when people shout out to us. We're always so excited about that. So yep. thanks. Absolutely. All right, guys. Have a good week. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.